Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 1, Part 1. Let's begin with a few biographical notes about Jane Austen. She lived from 1775 to 1817 and was one of eight children, two of whom were girls. Her father, George Austen, was an Anglican clergyman. Although Jane had little formal education, as was typical of girls in this time, her family valued learning and she was tutored by her father. Jane began writing stories in notebooks while still in her adolescence, and those early writings are referred to as juvenilia. The family, or more specifically Jane, her sister Cassandra, and her parents moved to Bath for a few years, where Jane's father died. This caused considerable financial hardship for Jane, her mother, and sister, who had to move around until they finally found a place in a cottage owned by her brother. Their plight probably influenced the sympathetic depictions of some of the characters in her novels, such as the Bates women in Emma, who are on the fringes of gentility but struggle financially. Jane's first published novel was Sense and Sensibility, published anonymously by a lady at her own expense in 1811. Pride and Prejudice followed in 1813, attributed to the author of Sense and Sensibility, and subsequently Mansfield Park in 1814 and Emma in 1816, both of these attributed to the author of Pride and Prejudice, etc., etc. The title page of Emma bears a dedication to the Prince Regent, if you remember that the period from 1810 to 1820 was known as a Regency period. Not because she was a fan of Prince George, but because he admired her novels and hinted very unsubtly that he would appreciate a dedication, so she felt obligated. Two more novels, Northanger Abbey, actually written much earlier, and Persuasion, her final novel, were published by her brother Henry after Jane's death. So if we do the math, we see that her entire career spanned less than a decade. Jane Austen died in 1817 at the age of 41. The cause of her illness and death is the subject of much speculation. One theory is that she died of Addison's disease, but we will never know for sure. In the previous podcast, I provided some background on social classes in England in the early 19th century, which will be helpful as we read the novel. Let me just restate that in 19th century Britain, status is not necessarily synonymous with money, as is often the case in America today. For example, people could amass considerable fortunes in trade, that is, commerce, but this was still faintly disreputable in Austen's day. A few words about Austen's narrative style, which I will point out at various places in the novel. Austen uses a characteristic narrative style that is referred to as the free indirect style. That is, the point of view shifts between an omniscient narrator and the character. A good early example of this occurs in the description of Harriet, in chapter 3, where we will see Harriet along with Emma's judgments of her, both viewpoints flowing together freely. More examples occur after Emma's humiliations, 
where there are often dashes and exclamation points, much as her dialogue has. There have been a number of film versions of Emma. In the late 1990s, we had a BBC version distributed here by A&E, starring Kate Beckinsale, a Hollywood version from the same year with Gwyneth Paltrow, and the film Clueless with Alicia Silverstone, a version of the Emma plot set in Beverly Hills. There was also a much longer version in miniseries format in 2009, starring Romola Garay, which won a number of awards. Chapter 1. Austen is noted for her memorable opening sentences of her novels, and her chapters, too. The novel begins, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. End of quote. That's a wonderful sentence because we are introduced to a character who is 21 years old and apparently rather spoiled, but there is something about the way that Austen portrays her title character that is unavoidably charming. Despite the fact that we should probably be annoyed by her, I think that most of the time we are more or less in her court, or at least sympathetic to her mistakes. She does have a number of flaws, but she's not a bad person. When I talk to my students about their impressions of her, most of them end up liking her, even though they might not at first. They sometimes say that if they met her in person, they might not like her, but through the novel, there's a charm that attaches to her. The opening chapter provides a concise summary of Emma's character and situation. We learn that she is the younger of two daughters, that her sister Isabella is married and living in London, her father is a widower, and as the novel opens, Emma has just lost her governess of 16 years, Miss Taylor, because Miss Taylor has married and become Mrs. Weston. We also learn that Miss Taylor was much more than a governess and that the two had become true friends. In the fourth paragraph of the novel, Austin writes, The real evils, indeed, of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. So we see here that she is very much the mistress of the house and that her father has indulged her a bit too much. Miss Taylor has married and is now only half a mile away, but Emma and her father do feel the loss and the change, and as we'll see, her father is very much opposed to change and is unsettled by it. We are told in chapter one that her father, quote, was a nervous man, easily depressed, fond of everybody that he was used to, and hating to part with them, hating change of every kind. Matrimony, as the origin of change, was always disagreeable, and he was by no means yet reconciled to his own daughter's marrying, nor could ever speak of her but with compassion, end of quote. Mr. Woodhouse is fond of saying things like, Poor Miss Taylor, I wish she were here again. What a pity it is that Mr. Weston ever thought of her. When Emma tries to point out that it's nice that Miss Taylor, now Mrs. Weston, has a house of her own, her father argues, But where is the advantage of a house of her own? 
this is three times as large. In fact, he is even reluctant to visit the Westons because it's too much bother for James the coachman to get the horses out, and he worries about what the horses would do while the people were visiting. We are also introduced in this chapter to Mr. Knightley, who is rather older than Emma. We are told that he is, quote, a sensible man, about seven or eight and thirty, end quote. So this makes him 16 or 17 years older than Emma. He is the most prosperous man in the neighborhood, has the largest estate, is the local magistrate, and has the highest social standing. His brother, John Knightley, is married to Emma's sister, Isabella. One of the things that is unique about Mr. Knightley is his relationship to Emma. The narrator tells us that he was one of the few people who could see faults in Emma Woodhouse, and the only one who ever told her of them. Emma tells her father that, quote, Mr. Knightley loves to find fault with me, you know, in a joke. It is all a joke. We always say what we like to one another, end of quote. For his part, Mr. Knightley says that Emma knows I never flatter her. So the two have a unique relationship in which they speak very openly and honestly to each other, and he is the only one who will point out her faults to her. He's kind of a truth teller. They discuss the marriage of Miss Taylor, who, as a result of her marriage to Mr. Weston, has risen in the world. Remember that Mr. Weston is a former military officer who later went into trade, but he earned enough money from his business that he was able to retire to the nearby estate. He is now part of the landed gentry, and by marrying him, Miss Taylor, who had been in the limbo position of being a governess, more than a servant, but less than a member of the gentry, she has moved up in the world also. Emma believes that the Weston's decision to marry is due to her own matchmaking, and she is quite pleased with herself. They apparently met while in her presence, so she is taking credit for the match. She now sets her sights on Mr. Elton, the young vicar or clergyman, believing that her success with the Westons will be followed by others. Mr. Knightley tries to discourage her from, from this, thinking that her matchmaking efforts will likely do more harm than good and that she should leave people to manage their own affairs. Chapter 2 focuses on Captain Weston and the former Miss Taylor in Captain Weston's backstory. We learn that he had married years ago a Miss Churchill from a great Yorkshire family while he was in the militia, which is quite similar to the Reserve or National Guard in the United States. Miss Churchill was quite above him socially, and her family was opposed to their marriage. In fact, they threw her off with due decorum. And even though the young Miss Churchill loved her husband, Austin tells us that they lived beyond their income. But still, it was nothing in comparison of Enscombe. She did not cease to love her husband, but she wanted at once to be the wife of Captain Weston and Miss Churchill of Enscombe. So, as a result, the Westons were in debt, and when his wife died three years into the marriage, leaving a young son, Mr. Weston did not have any real prospects or the means to bring up a child. He consented to have his late wife's brother and his wife raise young Frank, because his father felt that Frank would have a better life, 
with the Churchills who had wealth and connections. The Churchills adopt Frank and he takes their last name. As mentioned previously, Captain Weston subsequently moves from the militia to trade and ultimately to the leisure class. He had no plans to marry again before he met and fell in love with Miss Taylor. The young Frank Churchill, the narrator tells us, quote, was one of the boasts of Highbury and a lively curiosity to see him prevailed, though the compliment was so little returned that he had never been there in his life. His coming to visit his father had been often talked of but never achieved. Now, upon his father's marriage, it was very generally proposed as a most proper attention that the visit should take place, end quote. So here we see a small town that eagerly discusses any bit of gossip, and they've been talking about Frank for a long time. There is a social obligation here. Even though he was raised by the Churchills, Frank still has contact with his father, and it is appropriate that he should visit his father and pay his respects to his father's bride. Much is made of the fact that Frank Churchill writes very handsome letters and that the townspeople admire and read them to each other, but he has still not come. There is therefore much speculation about whether he will be making a visit soon. There is also some discussion near the end of Chapter 2 about Emma's father, Mr. Woodhouse, who is a hypochondriac and quite worried about his own and everyone's health, as we will see in this passage. There was no recovering Miss Taylor, nor much likelihood of ceasing to pity her, but a few weeks brought some alleviation to Mr. Woodhouse. The compliments of his neighbors were over. He was no longer teased by being wished joy of so sorrowful an event, and the wedding cake, which had been a great distress to him, was all eat up. His own stomach could bear nothing rich, and he could never believe other people to be different from himself. What was unwholesome to him he regarded as unfit for anybody, and he had therefore earnestly tried to dissuade them from having any wedding cake at all, and when that proved vain, as earnestly tried to prevent anybody's eating it. He had been at the pains of consulting Mr. Perry, the apothecary, on the subject. Mr. Perry was an intelligent, gentlemanlike man whose frequent visits were one of the comforts of Mr. Woodhouse's life, and so on. But at this point, quote, the cake was eaten and there was no rest for his benevolent nerves till it was all gone. There was a strange rumor in Highbury of all the little Perrys being seen with a slice of Mrs. Weston's wedding cake in their hands, but Mr. Woodhouse would never believe it, end quote. In Chapter 3, we learn more about Mr. Woodhouse. He is fond of society in his own way, but his horror of late hours and large dinner parties made him unfit for any acquaintance but such as would visit him on his own terms, and fortunately, many people in Highbury do that. We also learn more about Mr. Elton, who visits Mr. Woodhouse, as do the Bates ladies, Mr. and Miss Bates, and Mrs. Goddard, three ladies almost always at the service of an invitation from Hartfield, that is, where Emma and her father live, and who were fetched and carried home so often 
that Mr. Woodhouse thought it no hardship for either James or the horses. Had it taken place only once a year, it would have been a grievance, end quote. Now, the Bates situation is this. Mrs. Bates, the widow of a former vicar of Highbury, was a very old lady, almost past everything but tea and quadrille. She lived with her single daughter in a very small way and was considered with all the regard and respect which a harmless old lady, under such untoward circumstances, can excite. Her daughter enjoyed a most uncommon degree of popularity for a woman neither young, handsome, rich, nor married. Miss Bates stood in the very worst predicament in the world for having much of the public favor, and she had no intellectual superiority to make atonement to herself or frighten those who might hate her into outward respect. She had never boasted either beauty or cleverness. Her youth had passed without distinction and, in the middle of life, was devoted to the care of a failing mother and the endeavor to make a small income go as far as possible. And yet, she was a happy woman, and a woman whom no one named without goodwill. It was her own universal goodwill and contented temper which worked such wonders. She loved everybody and was interested in everybody's happiness." End quote. So we are told here that Miss Bates was of a simple and cheerful nature, but the Bates women are poor, and this puts them on the fringes of gentility. Mrs. Bates was the widow of a vicar and would be in the gentle class, but they are in very reduced circumstances. Mrs. Goddard was the mistress of a school, not of a seminary or an establishment or anything which professed in long sentences of refined nonsense to combine liberal acquirements with elegant morality upon new principles and new systems and where young ladies for enormous pay might be screwed out of health and into vanity, but a real honest old-fashioned boarding school where a reasonable quantity of accomplishments were sold at a reasonable price and where girls might be sent to be out of the way and scramble themselves into a little education without any danger of coming back prodigies, Mrs. Goddard's school was in high repute and very deservedly." End quote. And these are the ladies that Emma is often around, and this is where she meets the young Miss Smith. Harriet Smith is a student of Mrs. Goddard's, and in fact a day boarder, which means that she actually lives there. Most students would have come and gone, but she is boarding there. She is 17, and as the narrator tells us, quote, Harriet Smith was the natural daughter of somebody, end of quote. In Austin's time, natural daughter meant that she is illegitimate, and somebody means that her parents are unknown. Reading on... Somebody had placed her several years back at Mrs. Goddard's school, and somebody had lately raised her from the condition of scholar to that of parlor boarder. This was all that was generally known of her history, end quote. We are also told that Harriet Smith is very pretty. When Emma meets Harriet Smith, we have an excellent example of the free indirect style that I mentioned earlier that is associated with Austin. What happens in this passage is that we have the description from the third-person narrator, and it is combined with Emma's thoughts, but her thoughts are not identified by quotations. 
That is why it is referred to as indirect. Here is the passage. The acquaintance which she had already formed were unworthy of her. The friends from whom she had just parted, though very good sort of people, must be doing her harm. They were a family of the name of Martin, whom Emma well knew by character, as renting a large farm of Mr. Knightley and residing in the parish of Donwell, very creditably, she believed. She knew Mr. Knightley thought highly of them, but they must be coarse and unpolished and very unfit to be the intimates of a girl who wanted only a little more knowledge and elegance to be quite perfect. She would notice her. She would improve her. She would detach her from her bad acquaintance and introduce her into good society. She would form her opinions and her manners. It would be an interesting and certainly a very kind undertaking, highly becoming her own situation in life, her leisure, and powers. End of quote. In other words, Emma takes Harriet as a kind of project and is going to improve her and introduce her in society. At the end of the chapter, Emma actually shakes hands with Harriet, which is quite an honor for Harriet. Unlike the tradition of handshaking in America, where it is a very casual greeting, in Austin's era, shaking hands was a gesture of intimacy and affection, and that is the gesture on which chapter three closes.